0: The Remedial Herstory Project is a nonprofit working to get women's history into the primary and secondary history curriculum. To help us meet our goal, we produce media, lesson plans, and so much more. You can check it out on our website, www.remedialherstory.com. Our project is funded through grants and by patrons, potentially like you. Thank you to our patrons, Jeff, Barbara,
1: Christian, Kent. Jamie, Jenna, Nancy, Megan, Leah, Mark,
0: Nicole, Anne, Sarah, Alicia, Katia, Michelle, Jessica, Laura, and Jackie. If you would like to join these wonderful people and become a patron, you can head over to patreon.com and become a supporter of the Remedial Herstory Project. You too can help us reform education and allow women to be seen, heard, and complicated. Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell them what's happening in today's episode? Today, we are going to be talking about Native American women who are telling their own stories. Awesome. Much needed. Yes. Let's get into this.
2: Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her
0: partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. In this episode, we are going to be asking the question, how are native women telling their own stories? And we are joined on this episode by Dr. Farina King. And Mm. I am so excited to have her on the podcast. She's an associate professor of history at Northeastern State University. One thing that is so incredible about her is she is researching, she's a professor of indigenous studies, and she herself is um, Navajo. She was raised on a Navajo reservation. Her father's Navajo. Um and she speaks Navajo, which is very cool. I I'm really impressed with her. She actually speaks uh, several languages, including French, Portuguese, Yoruba, Wolof, and and of course Navajo um, and English. So I'm I'm really impressed. Yeah, she had a um, fellowship here in New Hampshire, actually. Oh, really? Cool. um, At Dartmouth, Um, she was the Charles Eastman Dissertation Fellow. Um. And that we know, being from here, just how much indigenous research and history. Dartmouth is is the place to be to do that,
1: which is really cool that she worked there and and was a fellow there. And the college was uh, really started when um, they were trying to build a school for Native American children to go to. Yeah. So if you look up a lot of the history of Dartmouth, it's very interesting where the land was donated from was Queen Elizabeth. You know, the property was given to people. The school was invented to really build a community between the English culture and Native Americans. And so there's a lot of really cool, rich history there, which is great that she's done a lot of work
0: for them. So she's talking about women's stories. Yeah, women's stories. So she's going to be talking about Cherokee women who were part of the National Female Seminary. Um, and so these are, these are alumni women and Native American women trailblazers during that time. Amazing. And so I'm really excited um, to learn uh, more about this history from her um, and also for all of us to work on, you know, making it part of our cultural knowledge and getting it into classrooms.
1: Amazing. It's awesome. Let's get into this.
2: Hello, Yad Eh. My name is Farina King. And I'm going to introduce myself briefly in the Navajo language. She bilagana Nishle Do Kiaani Bashishin Bilagana Dash Do Sinijini Dashanale akot Egoatsa Nishle. As I said, I just introduced myself in D the Navajo language, acknowledging my relations. I am of white settler descent through my mother and born for my father's clans, the towering house people and black-streaked woods people of Diné. That's what Navajos call ourselves. I am a citizen of the Navajo Nation. I will be sharing a lecture with you today about a Cherokee National Female Seminary alumna, Dr. Rachel Caroline Eaton. A central question that I address is, How did Cherokee seminarians such as Rachel Caroline Eaton support the Cherokee Nation? I teach Native American history at Northeastern State University, which was founded originally as the Cherokee National Female Seminary by the Cherokee Nation after the forced removal of the Trail of Tears during the 19th century. And that's considering, you know, the forced removal specifically to what became known as Indian territory and what people now call the state of Oklahoma. Considering my interest in this topic, um, I became interested in the histories of Cherokee female seminary alumni since I learned about NSU's history, which drew me to Tahlequah and the university where I work today. I was drawn to the stories of Dr. Rachel Caroline Eaton because she has been considered one of the first Native American women to earn a PhD specifically in history. Callie, as her friends and associates called her, was one of about 200 Cherokee female seminary graduates and one of a couple thousands who attended the seminary between 1851 and 1909. Many of the female seminary graduates went on to become leaders and trailblazers in their communities and surrounding societies, which I will talk more about in the main lecture part. I felt a connection to Cali, in particular, as a Native American, history, female, PhD, and professor myself. I wanted to understand what she went through pursuing her studies and how she sought to uphold and emphasize Native American history. For her, that was specifically Cherokee history. So it really related to me because I became interested in history Overall and in general, because of my ancestral ties to Navajo history, I wanted to specifically learn more about my Diné family history. And I feel this connection with Callie because she also really became immersed in history and pursued it as a profession because she was trying to understand her her tribal nation, and her people and ancestors' history too. So some brief context is that I became dedicated to learning and sharing more about Callie's story and those of other Cherokee National Female Seminary alumnae, which um, helps, I think, everyone to better understand diverse Native American and women's history, as well as dynamics at the turn of the 20th century, right? That transition between the late 1800s and early 1900s. And specifically in the historical context of the state of Oklahoma, that um, very raw and violent transition from uh, land loss, dispossession, broken treaties, Of Indian territory being um, transformed and transferred into the state of Oklahoma, absorbed into that. I will share a lecture about Dr. Callie Eaton in hope that this can support a broader curriculum and general education about Native American history and especially Native women's history. This lecture is based on my chapter of the edited volume, this land is her land, gendered activism in Oklahoma from the 1870s to the 2010s that is now available through the University of Oklahoma Press. So I definitely want to um, thank, you know, being invited to share this lecture and show gratitude to the editors, Patty Laughlin and Sarah Jonda, who involved me in the edited volume. And that got me into this history and sparked that desire to learn more as i as i pursue to understand even more about these seminarians and and the history that surrounds me at, at the institution where i work and and live really live and breathe these days at nsu so on to my main lecture that, again, I strongly recommend, please go get the book, This Land is Her Land, check out the chapter. I really draw from that, um, and that can help you see more of the citations and different resources there. But on to the main lecture. My main lecture is titled, based off of the chapter, Loyal Country Woman, Rachel Caroline Eaton alumna of the Cherokee National Female Seminary. And I start with a brief story about Callie. Um, In 1910, it was one of the driest years and recorded history in the newly founded state or formed state, rather, of Oklahoma. That summer, Callie Eaton traveled with Nellie Ross throughout Cherokee country or that part of Indian territory and specifically um, the Cherokee Nation that had been absorbed as the northeastern part of the state of Oklahoma. Callie and Nellie were visiting historic sites, gathering information and artifacts is you know what they called it for this Sequoia Historical Society that Callie organized around 1908 in her hometown of Claremore to better understand history of Indian territory and especially tribal nations such as um, her own nation, Cherokee Nation. Callie was working on a graduate degree in history at the University of Chicago at the time. Her academic track and pursuits would take her throughout the United States, but she constantly would sustain ties with home, returning to That those Cherokee homelands, the stories and histories of Cherokee land and peoples would keep reeling her in and returning her home. Even though the US government and different affiliates, because I like to emphasize it's not only the US government, but complicit societies and um, settlers who fuel these dynamics, um, even though The U.S. government and these affiliates renounced the recognition of the Cherokee Nation and sought to disintegrate its sovereignty through policies such as allotment. So it's remarkable that Cali is so committed to Cherokee nationhood and its narrative while there are all these attacks on Cherokee sovereignty and efforts to destroy it. The local newspapers in Oklahoma described Callie and Nellie as, quote, Cherokees and intellectual ladies who wish to perpetuate the history, traditions, and memories of the once great nation of Cherokees, who were a numerous and great people long before Columbus set foot on the Western continent. And that's the end of the quote. Another newspaper called the, these, um, Cherokees, the first great nation with which Callie associated herself, right? She was very proud of being Cherokee and identified as a Cherokee national. And as a Cherokee intellectual lady, as they also called her, Callie applied her skills with fellow Cherokee women like Nellie to study and tell the history of and in that way, as I was saying, it was sustaining and continuing Cherokee nationalism and even peoplehood, although she still had to navigate and balance her own American citizenship as, you know, as a U.S. citizen. Callie's life and work exemplify how some Cherokees navigated those plural identities and loyalties specifically to two nations, namely the Cherokee Nation and the United States. As the first Cherokee woman to earn a doctoral degree, as she is remembered, Callie connected with and stood alongside fellow trailblazers and strong women that were part of the Cherokee National Female Seminary Network. So I really think of it as a network, and I call them – loyal country woman. And I drew that term from a, a letter, a historic letter from Dr. Isabel Cobb, who was known as Bell by her friends. And she was another seminary alumna that became one of the first female physicians in Indian territory, also a Cherokee citizen. And I found her signing her name with that um, title, specifically in a letter dated 1892 to the Cherokee principal chief at the time, Colonel Johnson Harris. And Bell inserted before her signature that phrase, your loyal countrywoman. And that's how she was referring to herself as loyal to the Cherokee Nation and expressing her desire to serve the Cherokee Nation. So it's from that signature, I thought about how Callie and other seminarians were loyal to the Cherokee Nation when there were a lot of pressures and forces to um, question and take down that kind of loyalty. I focus on Cali specifically as part of this network of Cherokee loyal countrywomen In one of the most comprehensive studies of the seminary titled Cultivating the Rosebuds, the Education of Women at the Cherokee Female Seminary, 1851 to 1909, Choctaw scholar and historian Devin Mahesua recognizes that many seminarians went on to be leaders and social reform and politics even before the 19th Amendment was passed that confirmed women's suffrage in 1920. Um, I know another historian who is an emeritus of NSU, um, Brad, Dr. Brad Agnew, um, like like Dr. Mihisua, has examined the history of the seminary closely. And Dr. Agnew noticed that the seminarian's influence extended far beyond their actual numbers, as he said it, and they continued to affect future generations. So Cali was among such prominent seminarians who devoted their work to sustaining the Cherokee Nation while the United States perpetuated efforts to challenge and dissolve tribal nations and their sovereignty, especially at that time of the turn of the 20th century. As an educator and historian, Callie made numerous major strides and accomplishments. She is known as one of the first female county superintendents of schools in Oklahoma. She applied Cherokee methodologies and ways of knowing in her historical research, drawing from Cherokee oral tradition and her own Cherokee identity, that some scholars, her contemporary scholars, they questioned her and rejected. She developed a distinctly cher- Cherokee approach to historical study. And that's what I greatly appreciate as a Dene scholar who has pursued trying to understand and bridge, um, you know, the Eurocentric training of academia and history and Dene Diné, Diné intellectual processes and ways of knowing I see Callie did that in the early 20th century with her work. Callie's experiences and work show the complexities of being a loyal countrywoman. She claimed allegiance to the Cherokee Nation and upheld her citizenship based on her Cherokee heritage, but she also embraced and navigated Euro-American influences in her career and life. And her story illuminates ways that women shaped the Cherokee Nation during such difficult times. As I mentioned, the Cherokees were fighting for their existence in the face of the United States by positioning themselves as a so-called civilized tribe. So that was a part of the strategy was showing they're civilized. And most people look at that with the Cherokee efforts to stop the Trail of Tears, to prevent that, um, that they were trying to show, you know, they are civilized, they have the rights to land. And that strategy continued, that tactic in Indian territory. But again, they face the onslaught of, you know, the efforts to disintegrate Cherokee sovereignty and take away, seize that land, their homelands that were promised through treaties. Cherokee seminary alumni such as Callie carried a mantle, a banner of sorts of being loyal countrywoman of the Cherokee nation. So, uh, while scholars have asserted that Cherokee National Female Seminary enabled um, some Cherokee elite women, especially, to obtain a white settler education because it emphasized Euro-American customs, like they taught Latin there, or a lot of the gendered ideas of domestic training and such, the seminary did also um, teach its graduates I would argue a at least one very important aspect of intergenerational Cherokee tradition, that of Cherokee peoplehood as being separate from uni- the United States, right? A, a distinct nation. And Devin Mesuha recognizes um, the scholar that I mentioned earlier recognizes that Cherokee alumni held quote multiple loyalties. And she refers the uh, these loyalties as to their white and Cherokee family members, to the Cherokee Nation, to the state of Oklahoma, and to the United States. But the different loyalties of alumni, such as Callie, were valued in ways that were not necessarily equal. So that's something I also notice in my studies. In another piece, um, Mihisua, she offers some critique, she presents some critique of these prominent alumni um, who pursued graduate degrees and really were seen as trailblazers like Belle Cobb and, and Callie Eaton, but she points out that, quote, they did not use their extensive education to help their tribe. And I like to see this lecture and this conversation as a response in a way to that critique because when you consider Cali and seminary alumni like her, I argue that they did help their tribal nation. While the US government sought to dissolve the Cherokee Nation, these Cherokee alumni continue to value and uphold their tribal nation. So that um, in that way, they're elevating you know, that tribal sovereignty um, in the face of such a hegemonic force of the United States. By continuing to acknowledge Cherokee nationhood, um, Callie and Cherokee alumni like her, they complicate the meanings of American nationalism. And considering these multiple but unequal loyalties, I examine ways that Callie, like other fem- uh, Cherokee female seminary alumni, supported the Cherokee Nation through their works. Um, the seminary... Prepared these students to really have a strong sense of Cherokee's rights to exist, both as a people and a nation. And I, I see Callie um, holding on to that throughout her life, even when um, the U.S. officials and authorities sought to indefinitely terminate, you know, tribal nations as sovereigns. And a uh, Cherokee scholar Kirby Brown highlights how Callie's historical writings support, quote, a people's self-determined struggle to be still a nation. And Callie contributed to the Cherokee Nation as both a storyteller and a writer of Cherokee history from the perspective of a loyal Cherokee country woman. Nanny Daniel Fite, who was another Cherokee seminarian alumna, She graduated in 1880. She described fellow seminarians, including Callie, as part of an enduring sisterhood. And as an alumna, Nanny uh, noted how many of the, quote, old seminary girls, they would often return to the seminary as teachers, which included Callie. That's what she would do as well. So um, as Nanny's thinking about uh, different successes, examples of success stories of the seminary, she specifically refers to the graduating class of 1887 that included Callie E. N., Lizzie McNair, and Ada Ross. And each of them received um, their diplomas Actually, at the Cherokee National Male Seminary because of a fire in 1887 that destroyed the female seminary building that was originally in Park Hill, um, another site. And even with this very hard loss, the Cherokee Nation rebuilt, which is um, so incredible of the kind of resilience that, first of all, you know, they build this seminary after the devastation of the Trail of Tears and having to start anew. And then after they built that original seminary building in Park Hill and it burns down, they build another beautiful grand building in Telequa where it stands today, and it was opened in 1889. So Callie returns nearly 10 years later after graduating to work as the first assistant principal with um, the same principal and respected educator that was there when she was there, Anne Florence Wilson. And many Cherokee seminarians acknowledged Wilson, her influence on them, and they called her a worthy helmsman of the seminary. She was there between 1875 and 1901. And Wilson was quite an interesting character. She was engaged in politics. She attended local political rallies and followed the current issues of the time. And the students noticed that. They they looked up to her. And the Cherokee National Council were so impressed by her that they wanted to honor her with a resolution appointing her as the principal of the female seminary for life, Sadly, you know the U.S. federal governments and governmental in, officials they intervened and blocked that resolution in 1901, which led to Wilson's resignation. And in that way, she Wilson was showing allegiance to the Cherokee Nation. You know, while there are these tensions happening between uh, U.S. federal um, encroachment on on Cherokee Nation. Uh, abilities to self-govern, even the, the school that they started. After graduating from the female seminary during Wilson's time there, Callie started her career as a teacher, an educator, and she returned to work for a couple years at the seminary from 1896 until 1897. And Nanny, who I was quoting, really respected these women. She called them ladies who were selected on account of their ability as teachers and their personal characters. So it's again another um, emphasis on the point that Callie was a part of a network of educated women who intentionally were trying to shape their communities and bolster the Cherokee Nation through their work, through their um, dedication. And it is, Um, This dedication to family, community, and the Cherokee Nation, that is the definition of what I mean by these loyal countrywomen and how I'm using Kelly Eaton and her story as an example of that. Um Ch- Cherokee women and seminarians such as Callie they also changed tradition of Cherokees by becoming some of the first Cherokee and Native American women to pursue and excel and even enter certain professions that were predominantly um you know taken by by men by men and males Callie's identity as an alumna of the Cherokee National Female Seminary and as an academic historian, also enabled her to, as I said earlier, you know, further those connections with her Cherokee heritage and understand it. I looked at another letter from um, Dr. Bell Cobb's collection that was dated 1892, and it was signed by Kate O'Donnell, who was another um, seminarian of that network, uh, alumna. And um, she was also a a friend of Belle Cobb and and at that time was at Drury Drury College in Springfield, Missouri. And in the letter, Kate um, was calling Belle, my dear friend, and she mentions Callie Eaton as a common acquaintance. And um, she points out that Callie was at Drury, Drury College, that same college at the time. And Callie had no intention of returning next year, as she feels she must get to work. So Callie eventually graduates with a bachelor's degree from Drury College in 1895. And even though this reference to Callie in the letter seems really little or minor, it does emphasize a key point here, that seminary alumni were in contact with each other. They stayed in touch um, about their lives and personal personal developments. And I think they really helped support each other in those life tracks and pursuits that they had. Maggie Colfer Fry is another uh, writer who knew of Callie from the stories of her mother Um, Her mother was a former student at the seminary while Callie was a teacher there in the 1890s. And uh, Fry called uh, Miss Callie, as she was known, she said, was forthright in her approach. And she had a quiet sense of humor. In addition to her personal attributes, she had impeccable manners. To understand a little more about how Callie was like, uh, Rosalie Mills, I looked at how um, this individual had interviewed Callie for a Claremore news article featuring her as the Rogers County school superintendent. And um, Mills, who was writing about her and got to interview her, said she appreciated Callie more because of her sweet, unassuming, modest manner. Callie impressed and taught others with her example of humility Um, in 1910. She identified herself as a teacher, and then it was interesting to notice that in 1930, she then referred to herself as an author and independent who was, quote, working on um, own account. In 1936, only a couple years before Callie passed away, she was inducted into the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, where she was celebrated as a pioneer and the daughter of a Cherokee Indian. In 1938, um, a Choctaw intellectual and historian, Mural H. Wright, was honoring Callie's life, and she wrote a tribute to her. As a fellow Native American woman historian, and this is what she said, is, quote, I'm reticent in disposition and positive in her decisions, she, referring to Callie, was one of the outstanding personalities reared under the regime and the old Cherokee Nation as an Indian republic. So to a wide reading public in the Chronicles of Oklahoma, and that's where Wright wrote this tribute to Callie, um, Wright identifies and and honors Callie as a Cherokee national, nationalist. So she even you know points that out, that that was something very remarkable about her. While Callie had witnessed, she lived through the efforts to detribalize and break apart Cherokee nationhood in the wake of assimilationist policies, allotment, Oklahoma statehood, Callie, um, through that all, perpetuated and continued a sense and spirit of Cherokees as a nation through her historical work as a writer and also an educator. And a little background about Callie is that she originally came from the region of Indian Territory near Claremore Claremont Mound, and Callie would spend her early years in that Cherokee country. Um, it is important, though, to understand that that land was ancestral homelands of Osage peoples before Cherokees were pushed there from, you know, the seizure and dispossession of their homelands and violence in the southeast of, you know, what became the United States there. And Callie would pick up on these historical dynamics that, you know, were really complicated but so important, and it shaped her scholarship and her work. So one of her um, studies was an article she published called The Legend of the Battle of Claremore, Mound, Oklahoma, And that came out in 1930. It focuses on, quote, the Battle of Strawberry Moon or the Claremore Mound Massacre of 1817, during which uh, Cherokees had attacked and they had massacred Osage families in the village of Pasuga, which lay at the bottom of the, the mound, the Claremore, what's now called Claremore Mound. And Callie's historical narrative shows how her interests in Native American history began with exploring the land um around where she grew up you know what she considered home and at, in her youth she was familiarizing herself with um the stories embedded in the land and what she would would call this this tragic encounter and the destruction of the village of the mound And that, you know, opened her up to questions and seeking to understand the past. Um, It said in a quote, her childhood was spent under the shadow of the historic hill, glossy grass slopes and rock rim summit. After her parents, um, her parents who were George Washington and Nancy Williams Eaton, they settled their family in the area there around 1874. And so Callie's... um, earliest introduction to history and thinking historically, it can be tied to actual um, indigenous processes of of learning and knowing because she was learning the stories of the land and what um, a indigenous scholar who is Michi Sagig Nishnagbeg, scholar Leanne uh, Simpson, she calls this land as pedagogy that indigenous ways of knowing, as Simpson says, takes place in the context of family, community, and relations. Indigenous education thus comes through the land as families and communities, they learn and teach with traditions, stories, and oral histories of homelands. So Callie was receiving these basic lessons of history um, by listening to stories of the land Um, you know, immersing herself in these landscapes that were shaped by the convergences and even the violence between indigenous uh, native peoples like the Osage and Cherokee. And as a Cherokee historian, she continually returned to her homelands to learn through family and community. She also would turn specifically to what she called traditions and fireside tales passed by word of mouth from generation to generation. So that's where she was referring to um, the influence of oral histories, Cherokee oral histories, and how um, there's also an archives of land and community voices that are passed on and, and share these violent struggles that took place when Cherokees were forcibly removed to ancestral Osage lands, You know, escalating tensions there as white settlers were encroaching on their ancestral homelands to the east. So so that she could attend a old West Point school near um, um, what is now the city area of Claremore, Callie was Um, moved and lived in a log cabin with her grandmother, uh, Lucy Ward Williams. And that is someone who became a very important influence on Callie and how she would think and approach history because she called her grandmother a fireside historian and really um, an inspiration of her interest and seeking knowledge of Cherokee history. Callie was among a cohort of Cherokee and Native American students from Indian Territory who went on to higher education at Drury College in Springfield that I mentioned earlier, and she finished that Bachelor's of Science degree with distinction in 1895. There in college, she had a professor, Edward Shepard, who helped to persuade her to study Native American history. And she later would go on to complete a master's degree in 1911, a doctorate of philosophy and history at the prestigious University of Chicago by 1919, Um, and after which she would become a distinguished historian and professor. She served two terms as superintendent of public instruction in Rogers County, Oklahoma, after winning an election to that position in 1920, right? around that time when women are finally celebrating the 19th amendment that its passage. Callie established herself not only locally but on a national scale as a as a respected scholar in higher education. Um, a local news described her as a woman of broad scholarship, rich experience, and splendid personality. In 1916, another newspaper featured her as being elected dean of woman and chair of the history department at Trinity University in Texas. Um the article praised her as a successful um for her successful experience as a college teacher and they specifically referred to her time as an assistant principal at the Cherokee National Female Seminary and how she had previously been a professor at the State College of Columbus in Mississippi and later at Lake Erie College in Ohio. Callie sustained ties with her home community in Cherokee Country through all these um steps she was making and all this work she was doing. Her home community in Oklahoma often followed and celebrated her successes. In 1911, the morning Tulsa Daily World recognized Callie for earning her master's degree. The following year, another local news um, pointed out that Callie returned to Claremore after completing her master's program during the summer and she was visiting Claremore before heading back to her job in Columbus, Mississippi. So there were reports of Callie visiting with family and relations like her sister, Martha, who she called Maddie, Pauline York. Um, and Callie would come home not only for, you know, visiting family and socializing, but she also would come back as I started off with that first story to trace the histories. Of her communities and people.
1: Hey, Kelsey, I don't think our listeners know about the new upcoming project that we're working on. Which one? The video series. Oh,
0: the video series. That's awesome.
1: (laughs) I know. So I thought we could tell them a little bit about what the project is, how it's funded, and what the purpose is.
0: Well, We are producing a video series, 25 episodes on U.S. history, 25 episodes on world history. And the point of these is to provide teachers who don't know women's history with like a 10-minute video that they could play for their class. So say you're teaching a lesson on the American Revolution. Here's 10 minutes about women in that time period. Amazing. And it could be a foundation that you can springboard from and do something really cool on those women.
1: And these videos are, yes, you, but they are yeah. fully scripted. You can look at the scripts. They're
0: nicely edited with some really great content. Yep. They're vetted by historians two PhDs, at least in history. So, you know, people smarter than me. <laughs> <laughs> but they're going to be free and they're on YouTube. And they'll be on YouTube. They also have a comedian from Hollywood who is helping to make them funny. So it's, you know, because I'm like kind of boring. Uh, No, very funny. (laughs) But that's awesome. So they're really engaging and they're really
1: cool content. So more to come there. So we have those coming out. And those are funded through grants?
0: Through grants, through our patrons. Um, So their, you know, contributions to us through Patreon are supporting that project, and then we also have a lot of people that have been donating through Instagram, Facebook. We have a Venmo account, you can find us there. That's awesome, um, and they're making those contributions. So, yeah, it's an amazing thing. And if this is something that you're like, Yes, that's what teachers need, any every penny helps because it is a really expensive project. So,
1: it, yeah, totally. And we had a match donor for a while there, too, yeah. which is really cool. So, definitely, if you're interested in those, needed. yeah feel free to donate. You can donate right on our website, Instagram and Venmo. Yeah. Which is awesome.
0: Great work. I'm excited to
1: see the rest of those videos.
0: Oh, Brooke, thanks for your support of the project.
1: Awesome.
2: Her book, um, Chief John Ross and the Cherokee Indians is an example of how she shares and upholds Cherokee national history. And, you know, I can get into more of the details about her life and experience but I wanted to close with with this point that you know her her book is an example even today for Native American historians to think that you know and focus on a different perspective, one where the heroes are not just what were fed in meta narratives about American exceptionalism and Western expansionism, and that Native Americans are often erased and marginalized, put on the side as only, you know, so called quote savages or a part of nature, you know, to be tamed and conquered. But um Eaton Callie, a part of her work was showing just the incredible ingenuity, um, innovation, and perseverance of Cherokees that she was applying um, Cherokee oral histories and traditions to do that was a ground-laying work and groundbreaking. I mean, with preparing a way for other scholars, especially Native American scholars, to penetrate and intervene. You know um, those grand sweeping narratives that leave out and make native peoples invisible, and she puts them front and center. Now, she, no one's perfect, right? I think I it's important to be careful not to um, idolize people, but to recognize that there were really fraught and complicated dynamics, including. Uh, The fact that Cherokees were a part of tribal nations that called themselves the five civilized tribes, and they did that seeking to differentiate themselves from other indigenous peoples who they saw as less evolved than them, less civilized. And so there was a constructs of hierarchies and racial constructs, racialization that happened in stratification. And that um, the five tribes also adopted Euro-American forms of slavery and enslaved peoples were um, on the Trail of Tears as well. But before um, Callie passed away, she was working on a final manuscript, A History of Cherokees. And John Rhea, who is a historian that was able to look at that, he saw that she she touched upon such very complicated histories and issues of Cherokees. Even thinking about um, the freed peoples, the the peoples who were formerly enslaved by Cherokees, and what were their rights? You know, the questions coming up there that Callie also, you know, witnessed and lived through in, in her lifetime, and unfortunately the University of Oklahoma Press, where the manuscript was submitted before she passed away while she was struggling and, and facing breast cancer that took her life, um, they did not accept her manuscript and they rejected it. Reviewers called it too pro-Cherokee, or they doubted her qualifications, um, comparing her to male historians, um, saying she wasn't you know, as qualified. Um, and Sadly, again, her manuscript remains unpublished, but the descendants of her nephew, who she was very close to, uh, Grady York, they are continuing to seek to have her manuscript published. And it's really exciting that in history, you know, it lives on, the importance of it, why these stories matter, is um, seeing and understanding how women like, like Callie Eaton, they were carrying on a tradition of the importance of um, Cherokee women. And I think the significance of, of recognizing women and their roles in history and the unexpected but important ways that they contribute and shape society. And the stories we tell and what we remember the public memory about the past, it matters. There are struggles over, you know, how we talk about, how we think about history, even into the present. And Callie entered those conversations when, you know, there wasn't always a seat at the table for her. She would make it. You know, she really pushed boundaries. And a number of seminarians did that because. Uh, women's education was valued by the Cherokee Nation. They were, um, are a matrilineal people who honor matriarchs. And that is a tradition that has carried through time. And now living in Cherokee Nation, I, I certainly sense that too. And it, it's been an honor to be able to connect with descendants of seminarians. One of Callie Eaton's great, great nieces. Is Patricia Dawson, who is a Cherokee PhD candidate working on pursuing her degree in higher education in history. And Callie, you know, her ancestor was an inspiration to her. So she remains to be an inspiration not only, you know, for other historians and individuals, but even her own family, which is so beautiful as well. So I hope this conversation and lecture encourages you to continue to learn about Um, such incredible figures and history. It's really scratching the surface and I'm excited learning about other uh, Cherokee um, sisters, you know, part of that seminarian network and the kind of contributions, the kind of lives they lived and what we can learn from it. Thank you for listening. I hope you check out um, the chapter. I've also done some short videos with the Museum of Native American History based in Bentonville, Arkansas about Native American woman trailblazers. So I have a short video um, about Callie Eaton on, on that website that is open to people as well. Thank you, Wado I hope you all take care.
0: well, thank you so much. This is such an exciting topic. I feel like obliged to tell you that I'm on Pemajawasset territory right now <laughs> um and and it's um I actually live right on the pemi River um but the the i you know there were people here before, and the history's older, and so some of it is lesser known to us here in New England but Thank you so much for sharing this story and this history and this lens. I think it's more importantly, it's like a lens of looking at it
2: um, with our listeners. Mm -hmm. Yes. Thank you for inviting me to this conversation and for all the work that you all do to rectify and get us on track with a lot of these histories.
0: Well, I think one thing that struck me as I was listening to you is just how topics like this that are contrary to the European progressive narrative across the continent, um, Are sometimes hard to figure out how to how to put them into like a survey U.S. history course or something like that and I'm just curious if you had a teacher who goes yeah that was really cool and interesting but I'm not really sure you know if I'll use it like where what would you say to them and what advice would you give them to empower them to put this in?
2: Well I have to admit that I've thought a lot about this question of themes of applied history, what people say there, Mm -hmm. um, K through 12 curriculum. I'm a mother of three children um, from second grade to sixth grade now. And so I'm thinking about it all the time because I'm comparing what I was fed in the school system as a child that I was latching on to Disney's Pocahontas and a lot of these ideas and stories. And so here are some very complicated stories of individuals and through those individuals, like you said, we get a lens, we have a window into the past that really disrupts a lot of the meta-narratives and what's considered dominant and mainstream histories that people imbibe, they absorb as a part of their consciousness And so I think I I start off by telling people, one is stories are a great way to enter a conversation. It's one that's disarming, you know, because I think if you go in and say everything you've been told, everything you believed is a lie, (laughs) that can really shake people and the defenses go up and it closes the opportunity of exchange and learning because with stories, it's really a moment of sharing. So I often try to give people these stories like of Callie Eaton and my story of meeting her at a whole nother time and and place in ways. But it really is interesting that here's a woman who in many ways was living at a whole different setting, at a whole different context
0: mm-hmm. than
2: me. But I was crossing, you know, the same spaces and navigating the same spaces she was and finding we have more in common. Mm-hmm. And then it was opening my mind to different ways of looking at the past and, and the world that I'm immersed in today, um, making sense of finally being able to see things that are right in front of me. So I would say learning how to tell the stories and emphasize those and to let people know that you don't have to overwhelm people with everything at first. It takes step by step. So I think some people hesitate entirely, especially teachers. I mean, I've talked to some teachers recently who told me um, they're still showing Disney Pocahontas in um, a Native American culture class that my son is in even. And, you know, talking about women's history and Native American woman, if you ask people, this is what I often begin with too, is just kind of helping us to enter the same conversation, enter the same room and then pause for a moment and then learn how to listen. How can we just take a pause, take a breath Mm. and um, go step by step? with unpacking and even sometimes having to dismantle some very rigid ideas like public memory or aspects or just even unerase. Like there has been erasure and silencing of a lot of these complicated and messy histories because they are messy. They can be tragic. They can be violent. They can be dark. And especially with children, with our youth, right? You want to inspire them. You want them to be proud of the communities that they're in and have all that. So people get hesitant saying, oh, I don't want to bring this up because it's controversial. It will disrupt everything and and shake or shatter what the students are. And with my son's experience that I was getting at, when a teacher showed Pocahontas Disney, my son being my son, you know, I'm a Native American female scholar. He tried to talk to his classmates, telling them, well, this is not really true it's not really Pocahontas's story she's a real person mm. and it's funny because most people if they name a Native American woman they think of Pocahontas because of this kind of media that we're fed or whatever you know stories get picked up and really pushed out there disseminated but the teacher told him be quiet you know this isn't the place she kind of silenced him essentially and he shared that experience with me later And I called the teacher and we had a very heart to heart conversation, which your question, I feel like prompted here to share is she shared how, well, I just was worried. I didn't want to get into that, um, into, because she's aware that there was sex trafficking. I mean, there was essentially rape involved in Pocahontas story, some very dark themes and she was concerned the students aren't ready for that. And she kind of brought that up. And I said, well, you know, you don't have to tell them all that, you know, all up front, dump all that on them when they're really young, right? As we think about parenting and how people navigate that. And, and it's like, you can't feed the baby meat first, like those kind of analogies. But I said, you can direct them to the path of learning the truth, right? It's the path of learning what happened in the past. That's That's what we seek to do in history is the goal of just understanding what happened. And you can tell them she was a real person, like give them some framing of that film is not the truth, right? She didn't talk to these magical trees or necessarily drop off a beautiful fountain of water. She didn't even really have that kind of intimate relationship with John Smith. Like there's evidence that clearly and undo- does that. And it's interesting saying all this because Callie Eaton, She was even associated with a Pocahontas club, like Pocahontas became this real icon of an ideal Native woman. And I think this is a part of the conversation because people hear one thing or another about that. Like it's a myth that got picked up of that ideal of what a Native American woman, even like her vanishing, represents. Hmm. So we can take it step by step stories. And not overwhelm people, there's a way to go about it, but we need to enter that path. You know, we need to embark on it. I, I told her, what are we doing when we're not even embarking on it? You know, we're, we're continuing to, to pass on disinformation. It's like intentional misinformation of, of wrong information.
0: Yeah, I've showed um, just the two-minute clip of Pocahontas saving um, John Smith's life only for the purpose of saying that <laughs> you know, like, like that is like and let's let's begin there you know like let's talk yeah. about this this story you've heard and and dismantle it a little bit with historic evidence you know like what what documents do we have on that um Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it is problematic. I think when you, I loved how you talked about that eraser, right? If our, if our historic narrative, and we talk about this all the time with women's history, if our concept of the past is missing half the people, right. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, when it comes to indigenous people, we're talking about still a lot of people, right. That whose stories were missing, whose perspective is absent. It is kind of challenging because it is to to talk about those is a challenge to the narrative that everybody, has taken for granted almost. So yeah. I love that. I love how you can you can add your perspective of just bit by bit. Um are there any um primary sources that you've stumbled upon in your scholarship that you feel like I mean this is oral history. Um, and perhaps you know having if you're if you're near a community of Native Americans asking them to come speak and and share. Um, but I'm wondering if there are also primary sources that you've come across that you feel like are should be staples in the curriculum.
2: Yeah, so I'm actually a part of an indigenous history and literacy project that our department chair, Dr. Ian Anderson started with a social studies education um, professor, Chris Clark, and we teamed up with working with a local, um, middle school social studies, history teacher, Trico Blue, who is Cherokee and I believe black Freed people descendant, like black Cherokee. Mm-hmm. And so it's a really dynamic and where we are, there is a strong presence of, of Cherokee and Native American students and just people in general, that community. So it's a bit different because I've lived in a lot of different places like Maryland, Texas, I've lived in Vermont, um, where, you know, I've, I've been maybe the only Native American that some people have met. So when you say primary source, I think really primary sources are again, the source of the voice and perspective that you were just talking about of Native Americans that has been silenced, it's been marginalized, it's been erased, or just excluded you know from being considered a primary source even oral history that you mentioned for so long people just overlook that saying that's not history if it's not written it's not you know that was the kind of language the things that they said and there's still those arguments today of what is the most legitimate you know source and that shapes how we understand history the sources of course. Um, so with this project, We focus primarily on finding and focusing on and preparing um, lesson plans, working with consultation um, is what I mean with individuals like Trico Blue Mm -hmm. and instructors, where we found, especially with Cherokee Nation, um, there are many primary sources out there. And people yet have a hard time accessing them or or finding them or connecting them for various reasons. Um, But for instance, Cherokee Nation, which is deeply tied to this story of Callie Eaton, a Cherokee historian, that's what she was doing. I mean, I'm rereading her book about chief john ross and it's incredible the sources that she had it i mean of course you have to read against the grain because she was embracing the dichotomy of civilized versus savage which is certainly problematic we do not accept that today and that is a an imposition of colonialism right of dichotomizing this is civilized this is savage Um, But that was a part of the Cherokee Nation strategy of surviving, was positioning themselves as a so-called civilized tribe or tribal nation. And so they were trying to show their civilized by actually proving their literacy, literacy and having written documents. This has become very important to tribal nations of having this record, like this informational sovereignty, the control over their primary sources, and it's still an ongoing movement, but it's incredible of a lot of digital collections, and they've been scattered. For instance, a lot of people are not aware, or they know very little about the United katua Band of Cherokees. I, to be honest, did not know about them until I moved next door to their John Hare Cultural Center and Museum. And I met their director, Ernestine Berry, who carries so much knowledge and is an archive in and of herself. But she embarked, um, got involved in a major project of where she went throughout the country, throughout the United States, gathering and finding primary sources, specifically written documents in Cherokee, many of them in the Cherokee syllabary. For those who don't know it, the Cherokee Sequoia was a very important historical figure who created a syllabary, a written form of Cherokee, specifically for and by Cherokee. And so there are documents dating back especially to the 19th century in syllabary and they've got they found their way somehow in archives like the Benning Library, Yale. Um, Newberry and Chicago and all these different places. And so Ernestine Berry went on a journey to find all these different primary sources, get copies of them. And she she had a recent exhibit up, which still, I believe, is up since COVID-19 hit um, soon after the exhibit went up, featuring all um, Cherokee primary sources related to the United Kutua Band. And they are have a very different story. Um, her ancestors came to um, were removed before the Trail of Tears and the Indian Removal Act of 1830, because there was already violence. There was already heavy pressure. And some Cherokees, some groups decided they wanted to leave even before the um, Indian Removal Act of 1830 and, and all that chief John Ross that Cali Ian writes about and focuses about. So there are primary sources out there and Ernestine has been working with Cherokee fluent and language speakers, elders especially, to translate them. A number of Cherokee sources written in the Cherokee language for the first time. And there's some other really exciting work out there and they're being digitized for the first time and accessible at fingertips. And so I know... um, There is these archives now going online. ProQuest has these different, um, the archival vault, these different kind of programs where I've been able to get on and access Navajo Tribal Council minutes here in Tahlequah while I live in Cherokee Nation when I'm wanting to learn and research the Navajo Tribal Council meetings from the 1950s. I was able to have access to that through internet and this. So they are there. It's just a matter of, You know, learning the the gateways to accessibility and language will be important. There's so much history packed in the language. So I think in American history, we often say, oh, it's all English, English only, and this heavy emphasis on English, when there is so much we are missing from uh, language and those connections there. But there are written sources, and if you want to follow us at Northeastern State University, We are still in this project if that's exactly what we're trying to do is how to share primary indigenous primary sources, primary sources from indigenous peoples and be able to show exemplify how to apply those in K through 12, especially middle school and high school level curriculum.
0: You are speaking my language. This is so awesome. (laughs) I mean, literally, but the whole whole project is just so incredible. I am so grateful to you for, well, first of all, it sounds like we are cut from the same cloth trying to figure out how to support educators in telling these, these stories. And I just think it's amazing that you have you have undergone that with with your department and and local colleagues so that's amazing thank you so much i am so grateful to you is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners before we depart yeah i think
2: it's all a matter of learning translation you know just kind of thinking about language and here wow. of history right is even when we look at these primary sources they come from a very particular context a time a whole different world, even like layered worlds, not just, you know, two worlds or whatever, there's just so much going on. And so as historians and teachers, we really are playing this role of interpreters and translators in many ways, because we have to learn enough about that past and then learn how to speak at a first grade level, how to speak at a fifth grade level or whatever it is. And what is a fifth grade level? That can depend on what school you're in, what area and 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 that community specifically. You know, so you really have to be be mindful of that. And I'm even going to speak at my son's elementary school um, at least in a couple weeks about Callie Eaton and the Cherokee National Female Seminary, because we are in Telequa the area where this school, it's it really disrupts. Again, it is unerasing all, all these stereotypes or ideas we think we have about Native American women and women's experience in general. Most people are just blown away by learning that the Cherokee Nation, after the devastation of forced removal, they, the tragedy of that, all the loss, they rebuild in, in Indian territory. And what do they prioritize? One of the first things they do when they are rebuilding and, and the resiliency you know, that they they are pushing on and living is they build a school for not only men, but women and that they value that, and that's a part of their matrilineal and matriarchal values in their society, and that it's a school that they self-determined for whatever reasons, the strategies that they had to continue to exist when there was so much against them. There's so much against many Indigenous peoples to to eradicate them because they compete with different big powers, right, that weren't to absorb them and such. And so I'm already trying to think, you know, how do I share visuals? How do I help these students who live in this space to understand the history right in front of them so they can see it? Because it's sort of like we learn a word in Navajo. We say, yate means hello in English, but it means more than that. It's when you learn, "ya" yeah, means sky. And it's kind of like a greeting of saying, Um, all is well, and and it brings in the sky and and teachings there. Like there's layers and layers to it. And as a baby, as a child, we just have to learn to chew. We have to learn to crawl before we walk and run, but we will get there. And they are interconnected. So that's what I want to share in all this is um, Native American and Indigenous history, especially women's history, and matters for all of us. Because many of us live in a space shaped by indigenous peoples, and we don't even know how to see, truly see and recognize what's even right in front of us and shaping us every day. Mm
0: -hmm. And
2: we can do so much more for our future and posterity when we do acknowledge and then act upon that, you know, carry that knowledge in making the best decisions we can moving forward. So that those are my thoughts. And thank you, Wado. Oh, I love that idea that,
0: you know, that layers of translation. Because um, I was even thinking like there are probably, you know, translated, translated documents that educators could use. But I think you're, you're talking about just because you have the English translation doesn't necessarily mean that you have the deep understanding. And I am yeah. so grateful. I feel like, You know the 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 window into thinking about when you're when you're talking about people from different times and different places from you. um, It's important to just have that layer of doubt in understanding, and you know, and but not to say that you shouldn't keep investigating, but just um, but just doubt what you think you're understanding, and just keep questioning and keep keep plugging forward, crawling, as you say. So I'm, I'm.
2: I'm on my knees over here crawling with you. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, just keep learning. Don't let it discourage you. I think some people get scared by what they don't know. That's the issue. When it's actually that embrace, you know, of the unknown, and I think we're we're starting to see that more. It's yeah. really powerful, right? Oh. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. King. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And I appreciate all the work you're doing these efforts. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to remedial her story.
1: The other 50%, please subscribe, rate and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort until next time.